Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Before we actually get into the, the teaching, is I, I referenced a particular prayer that is in the Siddur, that is in the prayer book. And it's an interesting prayer because it refers to the Red One. And of course, the Red One has been the subject of discussion. And so that's what we want to do. We, we want to figure out what, what this Red One is all about. And so this this particular prayer is the thing that caught my eyes years ago. I mean, it, it. I don't know if it was 10 years ago or how many years ago. It was many years ago. And I wasn't at that time necessarily looking for a teaching on Hanukkah. What I was looking for was more information. You know, I, I wasn't reading in the prayer book to actually find the information on this particular topic. But the topic that I was working on of course, was um, the Scarlet Harlot and the Crimson Thread. I had been working with that um, workbook for, I think I've been working with that workbook for a while and I knew I wanted to update it. And so as I was reading through this particular prayer, it caught my eye because it referred to the red one. Okay, now back to what I was saying, I was, you know, what was in my mind at the time was working with that paradigm of the Scarlet Harlot and the Crimson Thread, her interaction with the beast, not just in the book of Revelation, but all through history, all through history, it's, it's been an issue. And so when I ran across this Hanukkah prayer that specifically mentioned the red one, and of course, you know, when we often, when we don't really know the background of Jewish history, Jewish literature, Jewish insights to scripture, we might read something in the New Testament that has a foundation in Jewish thought of the first century and beyond and before. And we don't really call it out and recognize it because we've never met that before in that context. We've we've never, it was never introduced to us in the Jewish context. And therefore, we'll try to look at it in isolation from any other historical context when we know that the context is the context of the Bible and the people of the Bible. And so when we read about the Scarlet Beast in Revelation, it's not this sudden thing that just pops out in Revelation that we've never seen before. This is something that's popping out again that we saw. We saw the, the proto-prophecy on the sixth day of creation. Uh, we saw more of it as we see the interaction between the serpent, the most cunning beast of the field, and the human beings uh, in the succeeding chapters, and all through the history. The history of the Bible, as we're reading the Bible, we see this scarlet beast keeps cropping up. And that's why, you know, as we did this little mini-series, I wanted to start with the conflict the contrast between Jacob and Esau, because Esau is the red one. Let me just read you this, 
And what this, this prayer does is it kind of recounts the history of particular enemies, okay? Um, and you'll you'll recognize these enemies. And it's, it's actually part of something called the Ma'oz Sur, the Ma'oz Sur, um, Rock of Ages, basically. Uh, I know we thought that was a Christian hymn too, but it, it's actually much older than that. Um, the, the Rock of Ages, the Rock of Salvation, it says, O mighty rock of my salvation, to you praise is fitting. Restore my house of prayer, and there we will bring a thanksgiving offering. When you have prepared the slaughter for the blaspheming foe, then I shall complete with a song of him the dedication of the altar. Troubles sated my soul, when with grief my strength was consumed. They had embittered my life with hardship, with the Catholic kingdom's bondage. But with his great power, he brought forth the treasured ones. Pharaoh's army and all his offspring, all his offspring went down like a stone into the deep. To the abode of his holiness he brought me, but there too I had no rest. And an oppressor came and exiled me, for I had served aliens and had drunk benumbing wine. Scarcely had I departed my land. When at Babylonia's demise, Zerubbabel came. At the end of 70 years, I was saved to sever the towering cypress, sought the Agagite, son of Hamadatha, but it became a snare and a stumbling block to him, and his arrogance was stilled. The head of the Benjaminite you lifted, and the enemy, his name you blotted out. His numerous progeny, his possessions, on the gallows you hanged, Greeks gathered against me then in Hasmonean days. They breached the walls of my towers, and they defiled all the oils. And from the one remnant of the flasks, a miracle was wrought for the roses, men of insight. Eight days established for song and jubilation. Bear your holy arm and hasten the end for salvation. Avenge the vengeance of your servant's blood from the wicked nation. For the triumph is too long delayed for us. Some say time, for the time is too long delayed for us. And there is no end to days of evil. Repel the red one in the nethermost shadow and establish for us the seven shepherds. All right, let's let's back up. And I, I wish you had the text of this, but you can find it in any siddur, pretty much, as long as it's not a special one. But just a uh, a typical, what is this? The Art Scroll Sephardic Sidor. Right? It's, it's got all the services, the, the normal services in there. But you'll notice how the Mahasur, the, the Rock of Ages, it takes you through the four beast kingdoms, right? Um, I don't know if you picked up on that as we went through it, but it's important because we've been talking about the four beast kingdoms, especially as it relates to Hanukkah, Greece and Rome. Uh, Greece, because of the abomination that causes desolation that went up on the 15th of Kislev, and then the sacrifices uh, on the 25th of Kislev, which, again, the date of Hanukkah coincides with that second date uh, because it, it represents a, a cleansing, a purification, a rectification, and then a restoration of the temple. But it starts out. Uh, it even goes all the way back to the serpent kingdom. Remember, the serpent has to give his authority to the beast, 
the, the serpent, the most cunning beast of the field. Um, in this case, it's um, a water serpent, Pharaoh, the crocodile of the Nile. Uh, the serpent beast is going to hand off his authority to the first beast kingdom, which is Babylon. And I think I went over that in a YouTube video called A Concise History of the Beast. It might have been a year or two ago. You can find it to show when that transaction was made between Pharaoh and the king of Babylon. And that's the golden head of Daniel's beast. Right, there's four beast kingdoms, but it's only one beast. It's only one image. And that's why when you, the image of the beast is just one entity, even though it has four kingdoms. Uh, so it, it starts out with the original serpent Pharaoh and his harm, army, and how he was destroyed. And then it says, "Well, I messed up. You know, I fell into idolatry, and so I was sent into exile in Babylonia." Babylon was the first beast kingdom. He's the golden head. And then Zerubbabel came. And then with the Medo-Persians, it, it mentions, not by name, it calls him the Agagite son, son of Hamadatta. It's referring to wicked Haman, may his name be blotted out. And it talks about how he was vanquished. So Pharaoh was vanquished. The king of Babylon was vanquished. Uh, especially that his exile was vanquished uh, when Zerubbabel came. And then the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, during the time of the Medo-Persian Empire, the one who tried to destroy the Jews um, was, his. it says, his name you blotted out. Maybe that's why they're not mentioning it in the prayer. And it says, the head of the Benjaminite, you lifted. And the Benjaminite, we could say that's Mordechai, we could say that's Esther, but he was vanquished. Medo-Persians. So there went the second beast empire. They're using this wicked Haman, may his name be blotted out, to represent that time period. And then it goes into the Greeks. It says, then the Greeks gathered against me in the Hasmonean days. They breached the walls of my towers. They defiled all the oils. What happens? Well, the Greeks are overthrown as well. And so Hanukkah commemorates the overthrow, not just of the Greeks, but of their um, impurities they introduced onto the Temple Mount, the abomination that causes desolation and its sacrifices. They say this is when we establish these eight days for song and jubilation, that the Greeks, the third Greek, the third beast kingdom was destroyed. And the prayer changes somewhat. Uh, it's, it's not that you don't figure out who Wicked Haman is. May his name be blotted out. They give you enough information to know exactly who they're talking about when they reference the second beast kingdom. But when they get down to the fourth one, it does not say the word Rome, even though we know that Rome was considered the fourth beast kingdom. When it mentions this, it says, bear your holy arm and hasten the end for salvation. Hayeshua. Hasten the end for Hayeshua. And it says, avenge the vengeance of your servant's blood from the wicked nation. So you know it's talking about a specific nation or empire. But you can also tell in the language, this one has not been vanquished. The prayer changes at this point. It's like, thank you, you, you took care of Pharaoh. Thank you, you took care of the king of Babylon. Thank you, you took care of the Medo-Persians. Thank you, you took care of the Greeks. But then what happened? 
the Romans, and they've not been taken care of yet, they're looking for a deliverer who can deliver them from the red one, which at this point in history is Rome, right? As as the beast kingdoms kind of morph through the empires, um, he comes to be called the red one because he's the last distinct one. He's the iron legs. And then from there, those iron legs kind of, they, they mingle, but they never marry. I don't know if you remember a lesson I did on that just maybe three or four years ago how the clay and the iron, they will mingle, but they can never marry. And we went back into a word study and like, yeah, you can have the iron and clay feet, but they will never marry. They're just never going to be that stuck together that they would lose their own identity. The iron will always be distinct from the clay, right? So they're they're in the, the, the iron leg empire of the beast. They're referring it to, to Rome as the red one by this time. And they're saying, we need to deliver, we need Yeshua to be the arm of Adonai and hasten the end of this last beast kingdom. And they're saying that this time is too long delayed. There's no end to the days of evil. They had no idea how many more days of evil would come after Rome was vanquished. In fact, Rome is not vanquished because it simply morphed into the iron and clay feet that have now infected the entire world. So if if you're interested, you know, in how those four empires of the beast can come up and you know, where did the Jews get the idea of the red one? This really in this one prayer it traces history of the beast so that when you read about the scarlet beast and revelation, now you have the context of John, like John, he's a Jew, he never went to church. He went to synagogue. He went to the temple. That's his reference point. That's this is his history, right? The the Crusades were not part of John's history. They hadn't happened yet. You say, well, why wasn't Hanukkah in the Torah? It hadn't happened yet, <laughs> but it is in the book of Haggai, very specifically. And if we look at this reference right here, there's a prophecy concerning it in the book of Micah, right? A prophecy that is not yet completely fulfilled, right? Now, was the prophecy in Haggai fulfilled? Yeah, partially, because uh, Haggai prophesies the exact day that Hanukkah will be established in his book. But it, it makes this little footnote, and I know we went kind of way off of the newsletter at this point, but I, I, sometimes it helps you to go back and review um, the fuller context, when even though we're putting a microscope here on the seven shepherds, I want you to see the context of the seven shepherds, because Rome was thought to be the last beast kingdom that that somehow if you destroy these these iron legs, then maybe it will also destroy the iron and clay feet. Maybe they'll be destroyed at the same time. We don't know in prophecy. We only know looking backward, typically, how prophecy is going to play out. Uh, but there's a footnote here where it says, repel the red one, and that's the scarlet beast, that's the Roman Empire, in the nethermost shadow, and establish for us the seven shepherds. Uh, and it says, some say the shepherd of seven. I think the answer there's going to be yes. There's going to be two different ways of looking at it, but establish for us the seven shepherds. The 
these seven shepherds, it says in the footnote, it, it actually says in the footnote that this prayer was changed um, because of strong censorship by Christian authorities. So probably originally it held much more specific information in it, but because the the Roman Christian Empire eventually replaced the Roman military empire, the, the two things kind of fused together. But it says, just to clarify for somebody who doesn't know about the prayer, it says the red one refers to Esau, Edom, whose descendants brought the current exile, right? So Rome was not a Christian empire when the current exile began, when the Jews were dispersed in the diaspora, Rome was still very much a pagan empire. And then over time, it began to morph into the, the, the religious, not just empire, but the, there were many religious systems that grew out of that. But it's saying, we look at Rome, we look at the iron legs of Rome. Rome is the red one. It was in this time period. And it's because of them that we're in the current exile, right? So if you're going to deal with the clay in the feet, you're going to have to deal with that Roman element, uh, however it presents itself. And so it clarifies who the seven shepherds are, who are expected uh, to conquer Israel's oppressors. And it's going to sound like an odd list, but remember, often these lists, they're based on character traits, all right? You're not literally looking for that person, maybe, but in one case, I, I think we are, um, but you're looking at the traits, just like somebody can come in the spirit of Elijah. It doesn't mean that's Elijah again, all right? It doesn't mean, you know, Elijah went up to heaven and now he's back here and he's got a different name. It could you know, since he was just taken up. Um, but often when we're talking about the spirit of somebody, it's like, it's, yeah, it, it might be a spirit of courage. It might be a spirit of zeal. It might be a spirit of holiness. Um, we know that Elijah displayed the spirit of Pinchas. Pinchas, remember Pinchas, how he rose up and he took vengeance for the not just the idol worship, but the sexual immorality that was done blatantly at the doorway of the tabernacle. And he wasn't rebuked. He was given an eternal covenant uh, of priesthood. And so in that same spirit, Elijah rises up and he slaughters the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, takes them down to the Kishon Brook and slaughters them there so that their blood will not uh, pollute the water systems, which remember were about dry by then, but instead the brook would wash their blood out to the sea and be done. So here's the seven shepherds. And you say, well, where are they getting this idea of the seven shepherds? They're getting it from Micah 5.4. Micah 5.4. The only question is who are they specifically? Because Micah 5.4 is not going to tell us specifically. How did they come up with these names? I don't know. I don't know, how do they come up with most of the stuff they come up with? I don't know. I don't know, but it is. it seems like it's pretty accurate on a lot of things. So they say, these are the seven shepherds, Adam, Seth, Methuselah, 
Abraham, Jacob, Moses, and the seventh shepherd is David. <clears throat> so that gives us context. The seventh shepherd is David. <clears throat> and if we, it's not in this right here, but if we were to look up the eight princes in that same prophecy from Micah, where he says he'll raise up for us seven shepherds and eight princes, um, the eighth prince, well, the seventh prince is thought to be Elijah. And remember, Elijah's going to come to herald the Messiah. And then the eighth prince is prince is King Messiah. So when we look at the when we say the seventh shepherds and the eighth prince, well, the the culminating shepherd is David. He's the central shepherd. So they're asking Yeshua at Hanukkah. It says he's walking in the temple during the feast of dedication. It's winter. That's the only winter feast that you could position uh, at that time. And they say, are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. Who are you? And then he starts talking about sheep specifically. Well, you can see why that just clicked. Now, they didn't like what he said. They didn't like what he said because we can see even in the prayer, it says, for the time is too long delayed for us. And this is reading it 2,000 years later. Imagine the time in which Yeshua lived, in which people are saying the Romans have oppressed us. They've oppressed us. They've oppressed us. The time for triumph is too long delayed. And there's no end to the days of evil. And they think, surely the Messiah is here. Yeshua tells us, and, and it's, it mentions him by name, Yeshua. Hasten the end for salvation. It says, kiss the end or an end, ha Yeshua, salvation. And then Yeshua starts talking about sheep. So he's saying, yes, I am. I am. But of course, I am the seventh shepherd. I am the son of David. But there's also a princess within that same prophecy. And so is he the son of David? Yes. Is he the eighth prince? Yes, but what he's trying to break to them gently by telling sheep stories <laughs> is that, you know what, if you think the time is delayed now, <laughs> you don't even want to think about when it will be fulfilled. It's most likely going to be 2,000 years later. He doesn't necessarily give them a time frame, but in terms of the millennial, the, the rabbinic millennial way of looking at the history of the world, there would be 6,000 years of history and um, the the fifth and the sixth thousand years, I don't know if that's the proper way to say that, they call those the days of Messiah. Even though Messiah is not physically here, they call it the days of Messiah. Interesting. But then the seventh millennium, they see as the reign of Messiah. And so Obviously, by looking at these last 2,000 years as the days of Messiah, the two days of Messiah, each thousand years being a day, they think, surely this Messiah is here, and this is part of the plan. The, the days of Messiah, he's literally going to be here with us. He's literally going to get rid of this empire of Rome. And Yeshua sees it differently. He says, yes, these are going to be my days. I'm going to die. I'm going to be Mashiach ben Yosef. I'm going to be the suffering servant. But you want the son of David to rise up and to be the king. David didn't rise up to be the king right off the bat. He did a lot of suffering and running and 
You know, there's a lot of Lashon Hurrah. There was a lot of betrayals. There was a lot of bad things that happened to David before he prevailed as the king. In fact, he didn't even reign in Jerusalem for the first seven years of his reign. He reigned in Hebron, not that far away, but it, it took some time to get his throne moved to Jerusalem. And so the son of David, yes, but not what you're expecting in terms of time. Like it says right here, the time is too long delayed. The eighth prince, Elijah's going to come. And once, you know, Yeshua got really cagey with the disciples when they they start talking about John the Baptist. And, uh, you know, he, he makes a comment one time, uh, if you can accept it, Elijah's already come. What is he saying? There's a pattern here, yes, but it's not the way that you perceive it. And it's definitely not the way that you want it. They wanted the salvation 2,000 years earlier. But here's the thing. They got salvation 2,000 years earlier. They got Yeshua. He died. He died for our sins. And he died so that that gospel message could go out to the nations where the descendants of Abraham had been scattered to the ends of the earth. He says, I'm going to go shepherd those sheep too. He says, there's sheep. Uh, There's more sheep out there. And you would be willing for me to just say these few sheep right here. But what about all those sheep, one of those descendants of Abraham that are scattered out there in the nations? It's going to take time. They're out there in you know the depths of idolatry. And one thing, you know, there's lots of uh, refutation as to Yeshua being the Messiah. And, you know, primarily because they say Yeshua did not gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel and um, that he has not restored Jerusalem. He's not restored the temple. But what if he did? What if it's a process like he's trying to tell them at Hanukkah that your your vision is limited. You're looking for something quick and spectacular, but you don't understand how far my sheep are scattered. And you don't understand the depths of their sin. And what it's going to take to pry them out of idolatry. And so it's going to take the days of Messiah to redeem those lost sheep, to find them, to proclaim the gospel to them, to disciple them, and to start to call those sheep in. So I would suggest to those who say he's not gathered the tribes yet, I would say, yes, he is. Not yes, he has. I would say, yes, he is. He is in the process. And when is the last soul going to be brought in? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. There is no other single person in the history of the world who have turned so many people from idolatry. Try to name one. Because other than the small, tiny percentage of the population that at this point in history were just known as the Jews. Tiny, tiny percent of the world population. Everybody else is worshiping idols. Everybody else, the entire world was worshiping idols. Now, the world is not in a perfect state today, but look how many over the last 2,000 years who have heard that message 
and who have abandoned their idols. We say, well, there's still remnants of idolatry clinging to some of them. You know, we're not going to worry about that. He didn't clean up Israel in a day. It took 40 years of personal intervention with Moses. And I would say there's going to be a lot of things that in the end, it's going to take some remediation. It's going to take some uh, intense work to expose you know, the things in our lives that still have vestiges of idolatry. But the big job has been done. Those who would leave idolatry at this point have pretty much left it. Those who were delivered and they want to go back to it. Now, I think we've actually started that point. Like he's brought them out. And now there's almost like a shift back. I mean, I tell you what, you go into a home goods store and about all you can see is a Buddha on every shelf, right? There's little idols everywhere now. And I'm like, okay, we've been delivered from them. And now it's like, we're moving back to them. It's like, we've reached that point. So I'm not going to be surprised at any time if Messiah returns, because I would say like, okay, he did the job. I believe he's collected the ones out of paganism and idolatry that will be collected. And now they're trying to move back in and serve idols that their parents didn't know. And that's what was said of Israel. You know, you're going to serve idols that your fathers didn't know. You just, you, you invented brand new ones. You've taken things on yourself that aren't even part of who you are. It's not even your culture, not even where you're from. What are you doing with that? So as we look at Hanukkah, and that question that was posed to Yeshua, then we can see that he was trying to break the news to them that, yes, I am the son of David. I am the seventh shepherd. Yes, I am the eighth prince. Elijah will herald my coming the way that John the Baptist did this time. Elijah will do it in the future. But there's 2,000 years of shepherding to do for me to recover these lost sheep. And if you can't hear that, if you can't hear my voice in that, then you're probably not one of my sheep because you don't really care about your brothers and sisters who are lost. You just want me to deliver you from the red one today. So I hope that gives you a little bit more background. Some of you already know that, Uh, but we can't assume that everybody knows everything we know all the time, right? So never a review, never hurt anyone. But it does. It refers to the seven shepherds and the eighth prince, because when you say, well, where was the eighth prince? It, that prophecy is hooked into the seven shepherds and Micah 5.5. 5. And so it's, it's showing us also, Yeshua is affirming, yes, you know, the kingdom of heaven will one day defeat and repel these infected world systems that are riding the scarlet beast. And I think part of this particular season is difficult for us because, and it's not just that, you know, it's, we're trying to keep the Torah and we're trying to walk in the word as best we know how. And there's people walking with us who just very suspicious of Hanukkah. They've never looked into the prophecies of Hanukkah. They've never looked into the history of Hanukkah. They, they just never considered that in this particular month, the abomination that causes desolation, it starts to be very much a part of the apocalyptic conversation. And Yeshua uses this apocalyptic language of the abomination that causes desolation. And so in a Jewish mindset of his day, like, okay, he's placed him right into the month of Kislev. 
And because we've got this conflict in modern times between Christmas and Hanukkah, they occur so close together that the difference between the two, Christmas is based on a solar calendar and Hanukkah is based on a lunar calendar. Right? Not that we throw out the solar to do the lunar, we have to keep things in their seasons, but the reckoning of the months is by the new moon. And so the 25th of Kislev, the early, if we want to call them Christians, the early believers would have celebrated in some way the victories of Hanukkah. It was just part of being there, part of being a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in that day and time of rejoicing that the abomination that caused desolation had been destroyed, uh, expectation and hope that the abomination of Rome would one day also be destroyed. What's interesting, though, is we know Hanukkah was originally instituted as a second Sukkot because they missed Sukkot, the temple was defiled, uh, they used the pattern of the Passover, the second Passover, he says, if you miss the first one, you can do it a month later. They use that pattern. And so having missed Sukkot, they do an eight-day celebration like Sukkot and call it Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication. What was retained? We say, okay, the, the early believers would have celebrated eight days of Hanukkah. Now, would they have had all the gift giving and stuff that goes on today? Not likely because it's become in some circles, I think, more of a competition with Christmas, which it never should have been and never should be. But the things that we should associate, again, with Sukkot in terms of the birthday of the king, likely Yeshua was born at Sukkot. The the signals of the Gospels are that he was born during the High Holy Days, most likely during the days of Sukkot. Um, and so you've got the announcement to the shepherds who are shepherding their sheep. You've got the announcement of the birth of a king. You've got the Prince of Peace idea. You've got the sukkah, you know, being in that temporary dwelling, the light to the nations, all the stuff that we typically see at Christmas time. It's actually part of Sukkot. And if we realize that Hanukkah is a Sukkot, Sheni, not as mandated in the Torah, but more as prophesied in the book of Haggai. It's a rabbinic enactment. It does not have the same weight as the actual Sukkot of the Torah. There's nothing that says that you cannot celebrate days of victory, just like Zechariah. He says, these four fasts that you've, you've got here that you're fasting, he says, I'm going to turn them into days of joy for you. So he doesn't rebuke them for adding fast days because they're not ever seen as the equivalent of a Torah feast. They're not seen as to compete with. They're simply, a, they're celebrating particular days. They're memorial days. For, so you don't forget certain days in history. We don't want to forget the abomination that causes desolation. It's too much part of the prophecy of Yeshua. But the, the idea of like, okay, we see kind of what's going on here. The symbols of Sukkot appear in Hanukkah. And then the prophecy of Hanukkah is associated with the seven shepherds. And so all this time, people who have been celebrating Christmas, they've been very close to Hanukkah. They didn't know how close they were. The only problem is when the Roman Empire took Christianity into a solar calendar, it kept the date of the 25th, but it was no longer the 25th of Kislev. Now it was the 25th of 
December. And so they got locked in here on the 25th, but they kept so much of the symbols of that particular season. And I think this will be the, the easiest holiday for them to fix when Messiah returns and he puts us back on the, the lunar calendar of scripture, then just like that, the 25th of Kislev, they'll be at the right time. You know, if we're going to memorialize the overthrow of the red one, if we're going to look back in history at the rededication of the temple and the sacrifices to the red one ceasing, if we're looking at apocalyptic expectation that Probably King Messiah is going to do something pretty spectacular at some future Hanukkah that involves vanquishing the Red One. We may have even more to memorialize at Hanukkah into the millennium, but it's they're very close. They're very close. No cigar, but very, very close. It's a, just a solar lunar issue. Uh, and sometimes a hard issue. Sometimes it doesn't matter to people, you know, whether something's true or not. They just want to be like everybody else. Don't upset the apple cart. And he gives us what we want typically. But that's the good news. They're not that far off. <laughs> you just, you turn the little knob from solar to lunar. And now they're, whether they like it or not, they're in the right place. Uh, and I think they're going to like it very much. I think they're going to like Hanukkah. Um, because it'll be like having another Sukkot. If one's good, two's better. Just like with Passover, remember, if one's good, two's better. There have been patterns in scripture where certain kings, they would set up a double Passover. They would set up a double Sukkot when certain things happened. And so that's not adding to the Torah, it's celebrating the Torah. It's growing something out of the seed of the Torah. Um, but often, you know, why is it kind of not in the Torah? It hadn't happened yet. <laughs> Just like Purim, well, why do you need an extra book? It hadn't happened yet. We need the the scroll of Esther. Uh, Hanukkah hadn't happened yet. So we're, we need the book of Haggai and Micah. But we know King Messiah, he will rule, he'll reign during the seventh millennium. And he's going to prepare the world for an eighth millennium. Remember, you've got seven, no, eight days of Sukkot, just like with Hanukkah, it's an eight-day celebration. The difference between the seventh and the eighth day of Sukkot is the first seven days of Sukkot, you dwell in Sukkot. The eighth day, you come out of the Sukkah for your celebration. You finish your celebration outside of the Sukkah. Um, there's a circumcision that takes place. You know, eighth day is associated with a circumcision. You know, baby Jewish boy is going to be circumcised on the eighth day. We know that the early believers, they were drawn in with a circumcision of the heart first. What we see is the seventh millennium preparing the world for an eighth millennium of a completely circumcised world. The circumcised heart is no longer going to struggle against the spirit of its creator. It's no longer going to desire to dominate the creator with its own will. And that's what the red one has been from the time of the garden. The time of the, the snake, the most cunning beast of the field. What do they do? They tried to conform themselves to the image of the beast, the serpent. And that didn't go out, you know, it didn't go well. But the red one is still in these great world systems attempting to maintain human pride over its creator. And as long as it can keep that pride over the creator alive and can dominate the world, the rule of the world with that, 
um, there's a great deception. It looks as though the creator's allowing us to get away with it. He created us. He defines the rules of what it means to be human. And we say, no, I don't want your rules. I'll do it my way. I'm God. And all of these world systems of the beast, medicine, military, politics, government, education, literature, uh, sports, any system, it's, it's often there to draw you in in order to facilitate and to perpetuate that idea that we are God. Like with medicine, we can learn to live forever. You know, with sports, you know, we can be healthy and we can compete and we can be excited forever. The, the, the competition, uh, politics, it's all about winning. It's not even about doing good. It's not even about righteousness. It's just about winning. And gathering as many people you can into your party, but not through righteousness and not through a promise of acting righteously. The Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah, it, it kicks off the season of the fall feast that includes atonements and Sukkot. And if we look at Sardis, the fifth assembly of Revelation, it represents Rosh Hashanah in the book of Revelation. It's the fifth feast, and it literally means red ones. The fifth feast, Rosh Hashanah, remember, it's going to be a time of the resurrection of the dead. But if you remember, that assembly was not ready. It was not ready at all. And so all the language that you read in a, in a Jewish maksur for Rosh Hashanah, that's the language that's used directly to the assembly of Sardis. Wake up, you sleeper. Um, so calling them red ones is not a compliment. Number one, it's the... The hint there is you're not ready for the resurrection. You are still conforming yourself to the image of the beast. And so when the shofar sounds, you'll be one of those that scatters. When that Torah that goes forth on Shabbat or uh, the time of Hanukkah, when King Messiah begins this military campaign against the red one, you'll be one who scatters. You'll be running because that's your image, you know, the red one he's destroying, that's your image he's destroying. <laughs> so sometimes our self-image needs to be shattered when we've conformed it to the image of the beast, but it needs to be perfected when we conform ourselves to the image of Messiah. The question was, Yeshua, if you were the Messiah, tell us plainly. And they ask him while he's walking in the, the Solomon's porch in the temple, King Solomon dedicated the first temple, but does it make a difference that they asked him there? Yes. And they're asking him, basically, are you the Prince of Peace? Are, are you, which, you know, King Shlomo, his peace is what it means. They're saying, are you this prophesied eighth prince, King Messiah? Are you going to deliver us? Are you going to deliver this temple from the Romans, from Edom, from the Red One, the Wicked? the abomination that causes desolation. And they just want him to speak plainly. And he does. He speaks very plainly. He starts talking about, yeah, I have sheep, but there's a lot more sheep I have to go find than just you. And he looked beyond short-term deliverance from Rome. And the thing is, it's so frustrating because as we look at these Roman systems, we don't have any control over them. 
So I don't have any control. It's, it's going to take King Messiah to come overthrow this nation, to come overthrow this dictator, come overthrow this ruler, come overthrow this evil organization. And we get frustrated because we know we don't have the power to do that. And so we need a Messiah to come. But knowing we don't have the power to do that other than to pray, what do we do? We have to start working on the red one inside of us. There is an Esau inside every one of us. We laid that down in the the first lesson. And so if we don't allow the spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, to disciple our soul, our red one, our Esau, then we're really nothing more than a human being who conforms to the image of the beast serpent. And that helps us understand the dynamic of Revelation. Adam and Eve disregarded the spirit of the commandment. They conformed themselves to this soul-driven desire of the beast. And what did they do? They fell to their earthy animal nature. And that's the difference with human beings. It takes the Ruach, it takes the Spirit, it takes the Holy Spirit to differentiate a man from a beast. Because if the soul refuses appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect, that's what makes up your soul. If you decide you are going to be the ruler and you reject the Spirit of Truth, the Holy Spirit, which is based on it is written, not I think I feel I want, Now you have conformed yourself to the image of the beast because that's all that drives the beast. Appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. And that's, you know, even intellect can be so seductive to people who love to study the word. That can be a trap. It's it's part of your soul. And you can grow smarter and smarter and smarter in the information and become more and more and more like a beast, more and more and more wicked more and more unlovely, more and more rude, more and more disrespectful, more and more suspicious, more and more divisive, argumentative, until you're just going in big circles all the time and you're not bearing any fruit. And so that person, it can become a red one. Your substance, your body substance, your flesh was taken from the earth, from the Adama just like the beast was, no difference. And the earth's Hebrew root is also the root of the color red, Adom. So you're the earthy one. And and Paul preaches about this. You You don't need to be earthy, right? You need to be a spiritual person. And he says the Torah is spiritual. He tells the Romans the Torah is spiritual. The law is spiritual. How are you going to live in your salvation? Yeshua came to save your soul. He came to save your appetites, emotions, desires, and intellect. Well, until you surrender it to him, you made that decision to do that. And then you actually do have to do it. (laughs) You have to allow him to transform those because within those appetites, emotions, desire, and intellect, there's lots of things that are not discipled of the spirit. They are not truthful. You have a appetite for things that are not pleasing to the father. They're unholy. You have a lot of emotions that don't conform themselves to what is holy and righteous. You say, how can you tell me what to feel? I'm not telling you. The scripture will tell you what to feel at certain times. It'll tell you to be joyful sometimes and you don't want to be. It'll tell you to be sober sometimes. You don't want to be. But you learn that, hey, it is possible. I just need to retrain my emotions. What you desire 
is not always scriptural. Your intelligence, we don't always think in ways, especially as it, it pertains to pride. We don't always think in scriptural ways. And so we have to start conforming ourselves to Messiah and quit conforming ourselves to the beast. And so that was the challenge. Most beasts want it very fast, right? Some predators, they might stalk you for a day or two. Most of them, they want the payoff fast. And so we can't be like that. You know, even though we pray that way, send the Redeemer quickly. Even so, come quickly, Lord Yeshua. We can't become impatient and go off and depart from Yeshua looking for a quick fix. And so often, you know, the deliverance will come fast for some people in certain things. And for sometimes he wants you to struggle with it. He, he needs to make some changes in you and the struggle will bring the changes. And you want a quick fix. And then this is where we get into the, the numbing things. We'll get into things that will numb us from not, you know, we don't feel good when we're departing from the word and we know it. So some things might numb us. Some things might artificially bring us joy. When actually he's trying to deal with us, he's trying to change what we conform to. So there's big things out there. We can't change the world, but we can change us. And the red one of every individual is under the control of the individual. And you have the help of the Ruach HaKodesh. You have the help of the Holy Spirit. You have the comforter sent from the Father. And that's where the serpent beast is going to appeal to a human being. Appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. He's going to entice your soul to dominate your spirit. He's going to entice your, I think I feel I want, to dominate it is written within you. And when that happens, the beast won. But your spirit is always longing to connect with the Ruach HaKodesh. There's a spirit of God inside of you that knows what is righteous, what is true. It sets you apart from the animal kingdom so that you're not a beast. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.